All right, let's go. James chapter 1. James chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, we will have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, we like putting it up there. We also have some physical Bibles kind of scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. Uh, if you don't have one that's close to you and you want one, just like awkwardly lean all the way across your neighbor. And you can grab it. Um, if you don't own a Bible of your very own, we would invite you to take that physical one home. We believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those really important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. Uh, we want you to know God. We want everything in, about, and around your life to be shaped by knowing him, filtered through the lens of knowing him. We want the world to make sense only through a relationship with Jesus. And if the scriptures are what he uses to do that in you, then we want to put Bibles in people's hands. And so if you don't have one that you can call yours, take that physical one home, uh, and I'll call it a win if you start reading it. Uh, so we have survived the holiday schedule. All right, Thanksgiving, over. Christmas, over. New Year's, over. And where I come from, if you're still standing after all, the, all three of those overs, that's a win. All right? And so uh, we're still standing straight up, and so I think we're in a good place. Two-thirds of us have already taken down all the Christmas decorations. The other third of you, you'll get to it sometime in February or March. Um, don't let anybody judge you. You, let, you enjoy that Christmas tree until every single one of those needles fall off. Be great. You earned it. Can't be bothered, won't be bothered. All right? Um, so just because I'm curious, uh, just, just kind of taking stock of things in my own house, uh, just, has anybody else's kids already broke half the things you gave them for Christmas? Is it just my house? No? Okay, good. All right, so I know the Seuss has got it locked down. All right, so, <laughs> so now, that, now that the holidays are over, now that we have finally arrived in 2023 as, as, as people who are enjoying the new year, now that we have some sense of normalcy again, what's next? Right? What do we do now? What's the plan? Well, I think it's time for us to go back to what I would call our happy place. Uh, from my vantage point, and maybe you have a different opinion, but from my vantage point, our happy place is digging as deeply as we can into a very specific book of the Bible. I, I don't know if you've noticed this yourself, but I certainly have. Uh, the book series always just hit different for us. Right? Uh, it, it has a different tone. It has a different feel. It's not that the, that the topical, kind of picking a, a topic here, picking a topic there series. Uh, it's not that the seasonal things like Advent and Thanksgiving and New Year stuff. It's not that those efforts are wrong or bad or sinful or even unfruitful there's a time and place for both of them they both all help us grow in very good specific ways uh the one-offs even have their place too but man it just it just seems to me that god consistently draws us to a better place when we commit ourselves for us to a specific text over an extended period of time he does some things that if you're paying attention change the change who we are in us and around us on a deeper level than normal and i think that we all end up loving the scriptures better i think it rounds out our shape as a healthy church because you know we're, we're drawn into some things that you know, addressing some things that the text brings up that we need to address rather than the things that we would probably chase after of our own accord or sometimes even wish to avoid and even on a calendar level I am consistently amazed at how just, you know, kind of faithfully walking through the text, the very next text often ends up answering and addressing things that we didn't see coming on the horizon when we started out planning a series. 
Things pop up in the world and occur within the life of our church family. And just the next text in the series is going to answer that question for us. Over and over again, I've seen that. I shouldn't be amazed by that. One, because it keeps happening. But two, I don't know if you know this, but God's smarter than I am. I know that shocks some of you. He just, he just is. I pretend that my ideas and my planning move the needle on all the important things around here, but i got to give you a little secret. I'm not actually in the driver's seat. It's just not true. He lets me play along, lovingly lets me play along in his good ideas. But the Holy Spirit is an infinitely, infinitely better planner than I am. Infinitely better planner than I am. And that, there's not been a single moment in a decade plus of regular preaching that I've ever thought to myself, you know what, it would have been way better if we were preaching through B instead of A in this season. God would have really helped us there. That's never happened. Not once, but there have been countless moments where we've been walking through a book of, of the Bible, and I've realized in that moment that God has been graciously leading us all along to a fruitful place that I had no idea was coming. Have you ever seen that? Man, I've seen that a ton. And in those moments, any attempt on my part to try to pull all the levers and get everything worked out usually ends up with a different result. It's because of realities just like those that, man, I'm convinced that we are at our healthiest and our happiest when our steady diet is what we would call an exegetical book series again the other things aren't bad they're not out of bounds they're not wrong things for a church to pour into it, it would be wrong even to call them something less than fruitful there's just an important difference between dessert and what you have for your regular meals right and so all that's to say this i want to kick off a brand new series this morning taking a very slow walk through the book of james taking a slow walk through the book of james i want to take it line by line pick it apart, and try to dig out of it as many good things as God sees fit to, to lay out on the table for us. Does that sound like a good plan to you? Well, let's go then. So what is the book of James? Well, it's a letter, sort of, kind of, kind of a letter. Um, it appears to have been sent as a letter, uh, and it clearly opens up as a letter. It's got a greeting. It identifies the sender. It addresses an audience, the recipients. It's got all the trademark signs of a letter. Yeah, it's a letter. But all that stuff happens in verse 1. As soon as you get to verse 2 of the book of James, it starts to read more like a collection of long-form proverbs. And so James is a little funky. James got a little bit of a weird bent to it. Uh, not, that doesn't turn it into something other than a letter. It's still a letter. It just means, though, that James is aiming at something different than what all the other New Testament letters that we go chasing after and pouring into are, are trying to aim at. Uh, there's less of an emphasis on a logical flow of thought uh, than most of the other places that we turn to in the New Testament. Just... Um, for instance, uh, the, Paul's letters. We, we we're, in, we're in Paul's letters a lot. We like that around here. Uh, Paul's letters all carry a very clear indicative, leading to imperative kind of uh, tone, kind of flow. Uh, meaning, uh, this thing about the gospel is true, so therefore, go and live in this way. Right? That, that's Paul's style all across the board. That's always what he's trying to do. A leads to B, which then leads to C, so go do C. All right? uh, but that ain't James. That's not James at all. James, need, James reads more like the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. It's got a proverbial style to it. And I personally think that there's an incredibly clear reason for that, though uh, there are some folks out there who very much disagree with me on that. Um, depending upon the answers 
to a couple of hotly debated topics, the book of James can be wielded by different groups with an axe to grind. Everybody has an opinion on James, uh, but those debated topics aren't insignificant ones. Um, and, and it really matters in this case what, what the answers are. Uh, and as we have seen over and over and over again, I think, um, those debates all consistently revolve around or consistently over things that are kind of always being debated lately in, in, our, in our world, um, especially by those who aren't very big fans of simply taking the Bible at its own word. Um, I don't know if you've noticed this yourself, but it seems like every single time we get into a new book series here, um, we always have to spend some time untying some knots that are being made by modern scholars over what we would call textual criticism issues. And so true to form, uh, the current debates all revolve around authorship and the dating of the letter. And you're like, oh great, it's a boring sermon again. <laughs> yeah, all the debates around James revolve around authorship and the dating of the letter. In the case of James, the who, what, when, where, and why is actually super important. Um, so we're going to look at the text, and we'll try to sort through the weeds. And it just so happens that the weeds are so thick today, we're only going to get through one verse. <laughs> you ready for it? Buckle up. Here we go. James chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Woo, what a massive text, man. Can't you just tell how much is packed into that? Man, wow. This is where we got to get out our shovel and our machete and just go to work. So the first question is obvious, right? Who, who wrote the book of James? Who wrote the letter to James? Well, verse 1 makes it incredibly clear, right? James wrote it. All right, so, so why would there ever be a debate about that? Because there's a lot of Jameses in the New Testament. The debate is not over whether or not James wrote it. The, James, the debate is over which James it's actually identifying. There, there are a number of Jameses in the early church, so w- w- which, which one is it? Well, the consensus answer up until only a few years ago was that it's James, the half-brother of Jesus. Sometimes identified by his nickname, James the Just. What a, what a noble-sounding nickname, right? Stephen the Just. Man, I, I killed for that. James the Just. The half-brother of Jesus. Which, by the way, it took me moving up to the land of nominal Catholicism to learn that Jesus' siblings are a contentious issue for some people. I don't know if you've come across that yourself. Never came across that my, on, on my part growing up in, in the South. Catholics believe uh, that Mary remained a, in a perpetual state of virginity throughout her entire life. And so it's tied to their understanding of her sinlessness. Uh, it's tied to uh, an understanding of several things uh, which they believe are necessary for her being chosen to be the mother of the Lord. And so if, if Mary's not in a perpetual state of virginity, she falls short of some things that they think Mary needs to not fall short of. That's basically how that works. And as Protestants, though, we believe that Mary's character is super important. We believe that her virginity all the way up through uh, the birth narrative is super important as well. Uh, but we also believe that it's God's favor, God's grace that it shines down upon her that led to her being chosen to be Jesus' mother. Not something that she earned, something that she was granted. We don't need Mary to be sinless. We don't even believe that she could have been, even if she, even if she tried real hard. I mean, even if that's the thing she wanted to do, she would still fall short. We believe that Mary needed a sinless Savior just as much as you and I do. And so as Protestants, we believe that Mary and Joseph 
They had a normal married life after the birth of Jesus. And well, like happily married couples often do, they had other kids after Jesus came along. Catholics, on the other hand, they, they go to great lengths to try to argue that the people in the New Testament that are very clearly identified as or described as Jesus' siblings, James being one of them, they go to great lengths to argue that, well, that word, that, that word doesn't actually mean brother. It means something else than brother. Maybe it means cousin or something. That word must mean something other than a little brother because that, we can't have that. Which seems like a whole lot of unnecessary effort to me, but what it ought to teach us, if we're, if we're good students of the scriptures and good students of theology, what it ought to teach us is that theological assertions almost never stand all on their own. They're always attached to what's around them, and they're all interconnected. And so sometimes things that seem like minor issues are actually load-bearing pillars for other things. And this is the case in here. And so the consensus answer up until only a few years ago was that James the Just, which Protestants rightly understand to be the half-brother of Jesus, is the writer of the book of James, the writer of the book that bears his name. But there are a couple other really important Jameses in the Bible. Maybe you've read about them. And those other two guys, they're disciples. That, that makes them important, right? You got James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, who, which, by the way, that other James, he's sometimes called one of the sons of thunder. Now that's a nickname. You can have just. I want son of thunder. The other one is James, the son of Alphaeus. And conveniently enough, in addition to Sons of Thunder, like those other two Jameses both have nicknames as well. You got James the Just, and then you got James the Great, and then you have James the Less. Apparently, who was ever, whoever was doling out nicknames in the early church thought much better of the other two, and then you got the last guy. James number one and number two, they got cool nicknames. I'm sorry, James number three, you get James the Less. While James's numbers two and three were disciples from the beginning, we're told that Jesus' brother, James, he was not a disciple at first. Um, in fact, the scriptures seem to indicate that Jesus' family had some original hang-ups with following him. I mean, how would you like to worship your brother as Savior and Lord? I've got a brother, a younger brother. We're in good terms, I think. I, I, I think if I called him and said, hey, buddy, I need something, I... I think my brother loves me just barely enough to get on an airplane and come help me. It's a long flight, it's expensive, but man, he's there. I'm going to go ahead and assume, though, that worship probably falls a little short of what he's willing to do. <laughs> Anybody else? We can call him and ask. I think, it's, I think it's probably a step too far for him. But listen, watching someone rise from the dead has a tendency to change your allegiances. Turn your allegiances upside down, even. And so while Jesus' siblings struggled to follow him in the gospel accounts, it is a very different story by the time you get to the book of Acts. Jesus' half-brother James ends up playing an incredibly prominent role in the early church, especially in the city of Jerusalem. He's not only present during the Jerusalem council in Acts 15, he seems to be leading the, the charge there. We also learn in Acts 21, when Paul decides to make one last trip back to Jerusalem, he, we're told that he goes specifically to see James. The historians Josephus and Eusebius, they both tell us that James was martyred. Uh, Josephus pins it around A.D. 62, all right? uh, which means 
Which means that James goes all the way from doubting Jesus' claim, saying, come on, boy, I'm not going to do this, all the way into dying for Jesus' claims. That's a big shift. It's an awfully big shift. So, so what then has caused the contemporary debate over authorship? I mean, it seems like James the Just is an incredibly worthy candidate. Well, some scholars point to the Greek that James has written in. They make the argument that, you know, it's too polished. It's, the language here, the rhetoric, is just a little too lofty for James. If, if James the Just is just a simple Galilean carpenter's son, and he probably never even left Palestine, then they, he doesn't have that in him. He can't possibly have written in such a Hellenized and lofty way. And personally, I, I think that's kind of an insult to James. Honestly, first of all, we don't have anything else at all that we're absolutely certain was written by him, so we can't exactly compare it to some kind of other, you know, like less sophisticated writing. There's no, there's no uh, Jacobean writing that we can say, aha, there's what James actually looks like. This, this is totally different. This is not there. Secondly, this letter is written in a proverbial style, so James is intentionally waxing poetic here. Whoever, whether, whoever the writer of James is, whether it's James the Just or somebody else, whoever did write it is intentionally aiming for the poetic fence. They're going big. But thirdly, the entire argument, like every bit of the argument, it can't possibly be James, it rests on the assumption that, well, James is just a poor country bumpkin and he can't possibly learn how to write good. That's literally the entirety of the argument. As, as a fellow country bumpkin, get a little riled up about that. But listen, if that wasn't bad enough, there's actually a fourth objection, and it's a much bigger objection. Even if we did find a viable, and good, a viable way of dismissing James's ability to write like this, to continue making such an argument, you also have to immediately dismiss the divine authorship that's guiding him. That's a problem. Even if James would have struggled to write like this, does that necessarily mean that God then is somehow incapable of using James to write like this? Yes, absolutely. Our doctrine of inspiration argues that God worked within the skills and personalities of human authors to produce an infallible word. But it does not follow that those human-shaped writings must be simplistic in their rhetoric or that they must be limited to the lowest common denominator of beauty and grammar. This is not even close to true. That is only a bridge that those who are already convinced, already opposed to divine authorship, struggle to cross. Which means, church, just do the little logic problem in your head, which means that the authorship debate it's not really an authorship debate. It's about a different issue. The authorship debate is a side door that people are coming through for a different purpose. More than people argue over authorship, people argue over authorial intent. Which is just a fancy way of saying they argue over the purpose of the letter. Why was James written? See, if James the Just is the author, then the most likely scenario is that it's written very, very early on in the timeline of New Testament writings. In fact, it's possible that James might just be the very first thing written in the New Testament, early to mid-40s A.D., some people think. 
And if that's the case, then the letter of James predates the Gospels by a good bit. Our earliest estimates for when Mark shows up is the early 50s. It may actually be later than that. Matthew and Luke likely follow after Mark. John comes onto the scene much later than those three. Uh, dating James in the mid-40s or earlier would cause it to predate Galatians, which we think is Paul's first letter, which we're pretty sure was written in 48 AD. Either right before or right after the Jerusalem Council. And the, and the clue that helps us land here on where we want to put James in the timeline is actually found in what we just read in verses 1. We just read that his audience is the 12 tribes of the dispersion, right? Well, that's a unique way of talking to God's people. It doesn't really sound like anything else in the New Testament, actually. Next week, when we get to verse 2, James is going to immediately start talking about trials and persecution. And so we think, our best theory, we think that this letter is probably written to Jewish Christians that have scattered out from Jerusalem after a Pharisee named Saul started ramping up persecution in the early church. They flee from Jerusalem, scatter across the rest of Palestine, and now we got chaos. Allah, Acts chapter 8. We're told that everybody fled the city except for the apostles. James would have been in that group that stayed. The early church is in a chaotic moment right now. There are issues beginning to pop up. And, and why wouldn't there be, right? Like all the leadership structure that was there in Jerusalem is suddenly not there anymore. You got a bunch of people kind of deciding what is right in their own eyes. It kind of sounds like the book of Judges actually. And like people always do, it doesn't take very long for folks to start making a mess of things. And so a lot of people look at the letter of James and see it as the earliest example we have of a church leader writing back to a people that he loves, a church that he loves, in order to correct them on some things that they're misunderstanding about the gospel and how it affects their lives. That's the, that's the main synopsis of the book of James. Okay, okay, yeah, 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 but... Why would anybody ever, ever not like that theory? I mean, that sounds like a good thing. Why would anybody ever need to jettison that idea and come up with a different paradigm of looking at the book of James? Well, here's the deal. The more you push back the book of James in the dating of the New Testament and you know, push it back from the early 40s back into something more like the late 50s or even the late 60s, some people think, and opening up the authorship to other Jameses coming later, or even other people claiming to be James, that definitely pushes the dating back. If you shift the dating of James back and back and back in the timeline, you can then make an intelligent-sounding argument that the book of James is not something that predates the conversion of the Apostle Paul, is it instead a direct refutation of the writings of the Apostle Paul. There are people in the world of biblical scholarship that argue that Paul's letters ought not, or they ought to be rejected wholesale. And the reason for that is because they see them as a corruption of the gospel as it was originally preached by Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That Paul defining the gospel in terms of, you know, penal substitution and propitiation and specifically salvation by grace through faith. They see that as Paul forcing an unwanted and antithetical religious system onto the actual gospel that Jesus taught and modeled for us. And that tribe loves the James debate. They always want to talk about the James debate. 
And so the argument goes that James, whichever James it actually was, we don't really care, that James heard what was being taught by Paul, and he goes, absolutely not, no sir, I will not stand for this. And then he goes to set the record straight. And so there are some people, some people out there who literally hold up the book of James, not as a counter-argument to Paul, but the counter-argument to Paul, and as proof that Paul's writings should not be included in the canon. James is a loaded gun. See what I meant when I said a while ago that depending on the answers to some questions, it gets wielded by people with an axe to grind? See, while the authorship debate is relatively modern, the debate surrounding the intent of the letter is far more ancient. It was actively being addressed in the the 4th century. It was a major sticking point during the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther's opponents in the Catholic Church uh, consistently pointed to the book of James in their attempts to justify the church's position that salvation cannot come by faith alone, that it must be maintained by what they call the merit of works, which that, that faith, even though it's obviously a valuable thing, I mean, who would ever doubt that faith is a good thing, but it can't be the only thing. To the counter-reformers, faith alone was not enough. That the other piece of the salvation equation that you needed was the good works that you did for God. Which, that led to Martin Luther very famously, and I think quite unfortunately, scoffed that James was a right straw epistle. There's one account of the story. One version of the story where he says, were it up to me, why I'd throw little Jimmy in the fire. Luther held at the time to what is clearly an incorrect and unorthodox view that there are two classes, two tiers of, uh, of books in the Bible, books in the New Testament. You had the important ones and then you had the not so important ones. We, we don't need those. Hey, guess which category he put James in? Now, we obviously disagree with Luther. We, we can't follow him there. In fact, I think he was dead wrong on that issue. While, while God used him to reform the church in an unfathomably necessary way, he also conveniently skirted around dealing seriously with biblical problems to his argument. By, by doing nothing more than simply dismissing the problematic text as less authoritative than the ones he wanted to focus on. That's not how you win a Bible argument. You deal with the text. And so a question that modern scholars and modern people have to wrestle with is the exact same question that we are going to have to wrestle with over and over again throughout this entire letter. What exactly is the relationship between faith and works? What do we do with that? What part do each of them play? If you approach the letter of James already convinced that James and Paul disagree on the gospel, well, then you eventually need to decide which one is right and which ones need, have, need to have their letters thrown into the fire. you got to make your call on that. But it's equally true that if you approach this letter already convinced that James and Paul are on the same gospel team, then it is then incumbent upon you to understand exactly how their arguments are not in conflict with each other. You need to understand how they're harmonized. Anything less than that is actually intellectual dishonesty. It's skirting the issue. And so that subject is going to rise to the surface over and over and over and over again as we go through this letter. I'm personally convinced, plant my flag today, I'm personally convinced that James and Paul are buddies, not enemies. I don't doubt that at all. But to preach the scriptures correctly, I'm going to have to prove it. I'm going to have to prove it. 
We'll kick off the ground assault starting next week. For now, here's the view as I see it from 30,000 feet. I think that James cares deeply. I think he cares as deeply as anybody can care about something, about people actually knowing and following Jesus rather than claiming to know and follow Jesus. That's the short of it. I think that he understands that there is a marked difference between saying that you believe something and living like you believe something. And despite the spiritual games that we often like to play, and and listen, we we play those games for all kinds of varied reasons, whether that's to gain something on a cultural level or maybe please a spouse or family member that dragged you to church, or even if we just lied to ourselves long enough that we're starting to believe our own hype. But despite the spiritual games we often like to play, the differences between nominal and authentic faith will always, and I mean always, rise to the surface as soon as things get really, really hard in life. And so writing to a church that, that's been scattered by persecution and threat and even murder, a church that's currently living through a very hard moment, James calls those whom he loves to an authentic faith. A faith that is proven, illustrated, and exemplified by faith-filled works. But that's next week. That's all next week. What, 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 what can we do with the text this week, right? In other words, how can we respond to this? Well, if you're here and you're already a follower of Jesus, our response is the same as it is every single week. We repent of sin and we lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text, right? And I get it. Like, what exa- we didn't exactly throw a massive text at you today. What can we possibly learn of substance from a single verse that sets up the context of an awkward letter? What do we do with that? And I think we can learn that God sees through our surface level profession. He's not, he's not fooled by it for a second. He's not impressed with the games that we try to play, even though we pretend like he's impressed. He instead calls us to an authentic faith, an intangible faith that changes us so deeply that it affects everything in us and around us in a tangible way. And even a step beyond that, I think we can also see here in verse 1 that God graciously provides people in our church families that love us well enough to sometimes do the awkward thing and say the hard stuff. I don't know about you, but I need more of that in my life. I get in the most trouble when people don't love me enough to call me out on my, on my junk, to call me out on my inconsistency and hypocrisy. I need folks in my, like that in my life and who love me more than what's comfortable and easy, and I'm going to go ahead and guess that you do too. God seems to have raised up little Jimmy to serve exactly that kind of loving role for the early church that had been scattered by a hard season. He loves them well. So I think our response this morning probably needs to take the shape of probably a realistic assessment of what we profess with our mouths. Like if if James were standing in front of us this morning, would he have some things he would want to point out? Maybe he would. Now a failure in this stuff does not a false disciple make. We're going to see over and over again throughout this letter, uh, we fall significantly short of this standard. I do, you do, it'll be all on the table. It has always and forever been the holiness of our perfectly right, righteous Savior that satisfies wrath and reconciles us to the Father. There's nothing you can do to sweeten the deal, I promise. 
We rest in his righteousness imputed to us, and we grow in his righteousness imputed to us. We're going to talk a lot about that throughout the course of this series. But man, authentic faith, it changes you. It changes you. It turns you inside out, and it makes you a new creation in Christ. And James, because James actually cares, he wants nothing less than that for the ones he loves. Neither should we. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. That's the time that we set aside to give space to let people kind of translate response from a head thing into an action thing. I'll, I'll be down front if you, if you want to talk about anything. Sure. But what if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet? How can you respond? Well, simple. You, you, do, you respond. You do that by meeting Jesus. The Bible teaches that all people, by default, are separated relationally from God because of our sin. That we are owed, actually owed, the righteous and fair punishment for that sin. The Bible calls that hell. Not a fun thing at all. But the Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy and that he loves us with a great love. That even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, he makes us alive through Christ by his grace. Not something you earn, something you were freely given. God sent his son, Jesus. He put on flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on a cross as a propitiation, as a payment for your sin. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now, now as the king who conquered sin and death, he calls on you to respond to him in repentance and faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. That faith, man, is a whole life faith. It is a whole heart kind of faith. King Jesus doesn't want your Sundays. He doesn't need them. He wants your everything. He doesn't need your more noble moments of service and obedience. He wants, and hear me, is owed all of you. And you can respond to him this morning. You can respond to Jesus. Man, I'd love to be helpful to you. Again, I'll be down front if you want to talk to somebody about it. Let's go. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe that's by formally joining our church family. Or maybe it's time to finally be obedient to Jesus' command to be baptized. Or maybe it's time to publicly say yes to the call he's been putting on your heart to take the gospel somewhere far away from here. Whatever that is, I want to set you up for success. Let's talk. But whoever you are, and however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's all respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for a tough letter. God, give us grace. Give us wisdom. Give us better understanding than we naturally have. Apply your word to our hearts. God, even, even in the setup to a letter, I can tell that this one's going to be a little difficult. There's going to be some uncomfortable things that have to be read and said. But you are good. And even as you have called us to look more and more like you, you have also promised to walk with us as you pull us there. So God, would you show yourself near? I know you are, but help me see it. I want a, I want a faith that gets things done. I want a faith that leaves an impression that no one can mistake. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear? Call men and women into your kingdom today for your glory instead of our own. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.